A very warm welcome to the third episode of the Educo Community Podcast. I am your host, Colin Robertson. Today we are joined by Dr. Reagan Garung. Dr. Garung is the Ben J. and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Human Development and Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and the expert behind Know Yourself, Change Your Behavior. Dr. Garung has authored or edited more than 15 books and over 125 academic publications on cultural differences in stress, social support, body image and impression formation, and he is the founding co-editor of the American Psychological Association's Scholarship of Teaching and Learning in Psychology Journal. In our conversation today, we go over all kinds of things that are vitally important to us as humans, including how to deal with stress, how to change your behaviors, and what it really takes in order to make a long-lasting change and meaningful difference in your life. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Regan. All right, I'm talking today with Regan Garung, the expert behind Know Yourself, Change Your Behavior. Regan is also a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Regan, how are you doing today? Oh, pretty good, thank you. Uh, so anyway, you and I have talked at length about your work, uh, but for those of you who don't know, why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, your story, how how you became interested in your topic, and what your career focuses on? Sure. So I am a uh, social personality psychologist, which basically means I like to look at how factors in our situations influence behavior and how personality influences our behavior. So I uh, I really like knowing why people do things, and that's what got me interested in psychology in the first place. I remember taking intro psych many years ago in college and thinking, wow, this is all about life and why people do the things that they do. So when it came time for grad school, I knew I wanted to go into psychology. And even though there are many areas of psychology, I really like the fact uh, that uh, situations can make such a big difference. And and no matter what your personality, there are some very strong situations that can make you behave in ways that even you may not expect. So that really attracted me to studying social psychology. Uh, and personality was another aspect of it, which is we, we do what we do because of who we are. So uh, I started really looking at big level questions. My early work was on social support. Uh, Why is it that feeling loved, esteemed, or cared for seems to work so well? And uh, interestingly enough, many, many years later with the TED Talk, uh, a large part of that is, is social support. So it started with this big interest in how situations and personality influence behavior. And over the years, I have taken that lens to studying, uh, how can we increase healthy behaviors? How can we decrease unhealthy behaviors? How can we have people learn better? So I've been teaching for close to 20 years now, and uh, I teach very large classes. I took that same interest in situation and personality into the classroom, and I asked the question, what is it about the classroom setting and classroom situations, and how professors teach that can influence learning. So I do a lot of work on on understanding learning, understanding how to teach better. And in, in, in many ways, it's linked to that same basic notion about how do we increase or decrease certain behaviors, and whether it's health behaviors or whether it's learning in the classroom. Fascinatingly enough, a lot of the theory 
And a lot of the factors or variables that you look at are about the same. So uh, for the last 20 years or so, I've been taking that same lens, looking at situations and personality and applying it to health and applying it to learning. And that's what keeps me busy most of the time. Interesting. So you brought up two very uh, big points there. Uh, one is, you know, that the situation influences our, our behavior. So that's kind of the, the external factor. And then you brought up another point of our personality also influences our behavior. So um, which uh, th- those are kind of uh, two different sides of the coin there. Um, do you focus on one in favor of the other or how do they kind of uh, mesh together? <laughs> Right. Oh, absolutely. And and I think I think psychology and many sciences in general, we often make the mistake of focusing only on one. And sometimes, and it seems like a mistake, but it's sometimes it's very pragmatically the only way we can do it. I mean, behavior is even tougher to try and understand because behavior is predicted by so many different things. So even if we look at it at the very global level of personality versus situation, depending on the behavior. Uh, there, there are some situations that may play more of a role uh, than personality. There are other behaviors where personality may play a larger role. So if you were to say which one is more important, I think behavior is always a function of an interaction. It's the situation is interacting with our personality, and it gets the plot thickens when we realize that based on our personality, we may not get ourselves into certain situations. So you so our personality may influence the situation that we're in. The situation that we're in, interacting with our personality could influence the behavior that we perform. So I think that's what's so interesting is there's, there is no, as unsatisfying as it may be, there's no straightforward, here it is, it's your personality, or here it is, it's the situation. Even the strongest situations, you'll see variances in behavior because of personality. And even with the strongest personalities, you may not see that same consistency of behavior because of the situation. So it's this constant dance of factors. And here we are just talking about two things, situations and personality. There are so many other things that can influence what's going on, but those are the two really big ones. And the way I see it, the better we understand at least those two big ones, we've got a pretty good handles of, of on, on what's going on. But I'm very upfront with myself, knowing that we don't have a hundred percent of the of the story. The most frustrating thing in with with you know when I teach psychology, the most frustrating thing for students to hear are the two words "it depends," because that is the truth. It depends. You know what predicts this? Well, it depends. And the good news is psychological science is getting better at predicting what it depends on, but we, we're still not, you know, have, don't have complete control. Interesting. So how, what kind of the, are the major strides that are helping psychological science understand more about this topic now? Well, I think starting with personality, we know that there are some personality traits. Whenever you talk about personality, there are certain traits. We often refer to what's called the big five, extroversion and openness and uh, you know, neuroticism. Uh, the five major traits go a long way in predicting behavior. So if I'm high on the trait of extroversion, there's a pretty good chance that you'll predict how I will behave at a party 
or uh, at situations like that. If I'm high in neuroticism, again, there's a pretty good chance you can predict what my behavior is. It's not going to be perfect, but you're going to get a pretty good sense of it. Other variables that are important are optimism, uh, self-esteem, resilience. There's been a lot uh, in the news recently about grit, which is related to resilience. When I think about strides, I think about psychological science, getting a better sense of these personality traits. Uh, and the better sense we have, the better we get at measuring the extent to which you and I have these traits, I think the better we get at predicting um, behavior and situations. Sure, sure. And, and I would assume that, you know, you brought up extroversion at a party is right. very different than extroversion in a classroom. Absolutely. Um, so that, yeah, that that's a great example of the difference between, you know, the, the personality traits and then the situation that that trait is in. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, even the even the extra even the extrovert is subdued at a funeral because that situation calls for being subdued. Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned grit, and it seems like you're uh, bringing up a lot of points of things that we're we're learning how to use psychological science to better ourselves. Right. I'm sure your class is a little bit more practical than many other ones for you know students who are actually trying to influence their own behavior and and pick up the right studying behaviors and all right. that type of stuff in order to learn and get great grades. Um, how do your students kind of respond to your material? Well, I think you know when when you talk about the class is more practical. There are, there are, I feel fortunate that I teach two classes that seem to be almost requirements for life. Uh, you know, I teach introductory psych, I teach uh, introductory psychology, which is an overview of major areas of psychology. And then I also teach health psychology. And uh, a lot of the work in the TED talk and that I work on more recently really uh, focuses on health psychology, which is, you know, how exactly can we use psychology to improve our health? And I know students have actually said that health psychology is almost like one of those should be a college required class because it gives you so many skills that you immediately take outside and use. I mean, we talk about stress and coping. We talk about improving health behaviors. You know, and right there, stress and coping and health behaviors, who doesn't want to know how to cope with stress? Who doesn't want to know how to increase your health behaviors? So, and, and that's exactly the same case with intro to psych. Uh, intro to psych is a, a more broader spectrum where you really get some critical thinking tools. You really get a better sense of understanding um, why we do the things that we do. And uh, in many ways, when I did my TED Talk, my challenge to myself was to take a 14-week or 15-week intro psych course and in 18 or so minutes, try and filter down what are the most interesting elements of psychological science that anybody, regardless of what they work at or what they do, that they can take and use. And, and that's where I came up with, you know, those three main elements that I talk about. Interesting. I mean, you brought up a great point that I never really thought about is that, you know, with health psychology, even if all we did was just take a course on how to handle stress, you know, every single right. one of us in the world deals with stress daily. So I'm, I'm curious what, what kind of if you can break that course down into uh, you know a, a, a minute soundbite, what do you teach your students about how to handle the stress that they face in their life? Yeah, you know, in a minute, that's a, that's a good challenge. The I think one of the biggest things that comes to mind is uh, are are actually two elements of 
when I talk about drilling and practicing better behaviors, the biggest thing I teach students is and, and talk about is when it comes to stress, a lot of stress is our appraisal of an event. So depending on how you or I read an event, we can make it more stressful or less stressful depending on how we read it. Uh, I love Shakespeare's line. I love Shakespeare's line, which goes, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And I think that's one major takeaway is, is thinking about something can change the nature of that event. So an event can be a challenge or an event can be a stressor, but you and I have the decision. You and I play a large part in doing it. I mean, even something like public speaking, which almost everybody would consider a stressor, well, how you think about it can make a difference. If you consider it a challenge, if you, uh, it's, it's not going to be as stressful as if you can consider it or if you think about it as something that can embarrass you. So that's one big thing that comes out of the course is that really how we think about our health behaviors, how we think about our lives can play a very large role. Uh, there's one more, which is, which really fascinates me is that so many of our behaviors and even our thinking are influenced by conditioning. You know, uh, if we, if we do something or think something and we are rewarded for doing that, we do it more. Uh, if we do something or think something and are punished, well, we do it less. And that common, basic, classic psychological phenomena underlies so much of our health behaviors. Uh, and that's something I really try and play up with, with whoever I talk to is, you know, think about conditioning. Are you being conditioned to do it? Are you being reinforced to do something? Are you being punished? Uh, and we can use reinforcement and punishment to change how we think about things and do things. Interesting. So how would you positively reinforce something like your behavior or your relationship with stress? Right. So for example, I think it's how we cope with stress. So let's say I have a stressful event and if I cope with it, if I can come up with and cope with it in the right way, there'll actually be a natural reward, which is I will feel better. Right. So there's a combination of these natural rewards where if I practice coping in the right way, I will be rewarded by feeling better and automatically I will practice coping in that way more. That's just how we are as human beings. We do more of what we are rewarded for doing. Uh, by the same token, if I, practice, if I do something to cope with stress that is not optimal, and if I punish myself for doing that, I will do, do that less. So let me give you a practical example. Let's just say, you know, I have multiple ways of coping with feeling stressed and I decide to go out and eat some ice cream. Now, you know, eating a pint of ice cream can be fun. Doing it once in a while is not, not bad. But if you find yourself doing it often, that's not an optimal coping strategy. So if I say to myself, you know what, I'm going to let myself do it once. But if I let myself do it more than once, I'm going to take away something or I'm going to punish myself by putting money in a jar or whatever, right? Automatically, that's going to serve as something to keep me from using that maladaptive coping mechanism in the future. And that's what, that, yeah, that's what it's all about. It's coming up with those ways to modify your behavior. In your example, you know, you, you react negatively towards stress and, you know, you, you kind of you don't rise to the challenge, you kind of run away from it and eat, you know, some ice cream. And that positively reinforces the negative behavior. Um, but I know a lot of people who respond to, or, or instead of rising to the challenge, they run from it and then they feel guilty about running from it. 
So that would be kind of a negative reinforcer to the negative stressing event. So what, what would occur there? So what, what's happening there is, is very often, if you feel the guilt, you could say, well, you should be less likely to do that in the future. And that only, that only goes so far. I think what's, what's needed here is us consciously, us consciously putting something into place to make that automatic response less likely to happen. So for example, we may have an automatic response to stress, an automatic way that we always cope with stress that may not be the best one. What we've got to do is consciously recognize that automatic way and then make that conscious decision to do something differently. So we may notice that we run away from something or, or avoid work because it's stressful to do it. And that may be an automatic way of doing it, but we've got to recognize that. And even recognizing that is not that, is not that easy. It seems like, oh, I know I do that. Well, do you really know you do it, you know? So that's why always the first step is recognizing those automatic patterns and then putting something into place that will consciously change it. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, one one huge example, um, even within our relationship, is the fact that I'm very much an introvert. And so before making, say, sales calls or even this podcast interview, I feel a huge rush of anxiety of, you know, well, am I going to do this right? You know, all that type of stuff. Um, but one of the biggest things I've learned how to do is learn how to say, okay, my body's making me feel anxious so that I'm more focused and alert and prepared for whatever challenge I'm taking on next. Uh, now it's just kind of second nature doing that. But I've, I've, as you said, it took me being aware of those anxious feelings in order to get there. Well, and, and you've also done automatically in your example, you nicely mentioned that second main step. So step one is recognizing it, but step two is actually changing the meaning of it, right? I mean, you, you could have recognized that anxiety and go, oh, yeah, and you could have freaked yourself out some more. But instead, you've turned it around and reinterpreted that feeling into a more positive way. And that's, that's another very critical step, you know, is to not just recognize the automatic reactions our body have, but put a more positive useful spin on it, which is what you seem to have done. Yeah, that's great. Um, so how about you and, and your, your teaching? You mentioned, you know, using your own work in education. How, how do you use your own ideas on a regular basis? <laughs> well, that's, that's, I smile and laugh because I think when you're a parent of two young kids, there are many times when you feel yourself reacting automatically. And I think one thing I, I work really hard at is noticing, uh, especially in my relationship as a father and a dad, uh, when my kids are frustrating me, recognizing some of those automatic thoughts and being consciously ready to try something different. And that's probably one of the biggest places that I use, you know, I practice what I preach is in relationships with my kids is, is there are times when things get frustrating, but you know, I sometimes either pull away or I consciously have some things that I will say or do that will diffuse situations without them escalating into a shouting match, which is very easy to happen when you have a very stubborn uh, kid. Sure, sure. So do you have any examples? I would love to know more. <laughs> well, I think, I think, you know, both 
I and one of my kids react very automatically in frustrating situations. And uh, I've come to recognize when things are escalating and she will say something or do something and I will find myself ready to respond in a stock way. But now, instead of responding in that stock way, which may be to try the firm louder parental well i i automatically try a, a a distracting method and one of the things that i find is that very often something that short circuits and prevents escalation is by really doing something dramatically different as a break and when i do this with my daughter sometimes that break works well enough that it resets her pattern and my pattern, and we can talk about the original issue in a much better way. So, you know, it's recognizing that negative cycle, putting something into place, and uh, practicing doing it. That's interesting. So, what would be considered a break? Would you just say, all right, we're going to take a time out here and just cool off, or would you actually start doing another activity? It's it's both. I mean, and again, this goes back to what we said earlier about the situation. In some situations, a timeout break where, you know, let's talk about that in five minutes works well. Uh, in other situations, it's actually, hey, you know what, um, let's come back to this. But in the meantime, let's go work on this project that this craft project that you were interested in, you know, and so that distractor where we go, you know, I just don't want to talk about that first thing right now. Let's go work on this. What I found is just that working on that something new automatically changes the whole tenor of the conversation. I can imagine, especially if you're working on something together, because now all of a sudden you're allies. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's it's really, you know, it's and, and it goes back to what I said previously. There's no one size fits all or no or no strategy that necessarily works all the time. It's making sure we have a set of strategies and being ready to try different ones. Sure. And I would imagine just the awareness is, is the number one strategy that will almost always work. It's just understanding and, you know, there's, a, there's kind of a strategy to be put into place. Exactly. And I think that's the toughest thing is I think so many of us are so unaware of the automatic ways that we respond to situations. And I think that's really the big first step there is just getting a better sense of how we, we react because everybody reacts differently. So, I mean, th this touches on a lot of things like, uh, like meditation and mindfulness. Do you, do you do any of those practices? You know, not, not formally, not formally, but I'm one of those people who meditate, you know, if you want to phrase it that way, I'm mindful of the, the, the seemingly mundane things that I do. So if I'm shoveling, I'm mindful. I'm not listening to music while I'm shoveling. Actually, even when I go for a run, I'm one of those people who, who doesn't run with music because I like just focusing on my, the sound of, you know, my footfalls or sounding or focusing on my panting breath or, you know, or things like that. So instead of, instead of, oh, now is my meditation time where I'm going to sit and meditate, I, I take every opportunity I can to be mindful. Uh, there are times when on a especially stressful day and I'm driving home, I don't listen to any music. So I can just take some time and, and relax. And so you can call that meditation. You can call that mindfulness. Uh, which it is, but I try and find ways to work that into many different times of the day and parts of life. Great, great. Yeah, I mean, it's all it really takes is is the ability to bring your attention to the present moment. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, your eyes closed and focusing just on your breath. Oh, absolutely. 
Well, you know, and, and it goes back to, it also goes back to changing how you view a situation, just like how you talked about your experiences and relabeling that anxiety. You know, take something that most people don't like doing, which is washing dishes. Uh, you know, and it is a it is a chore, but you know, if you just spend that dishwashing time focusing on doing a good job and realize that it's keeping you from, you know, worrying about email or a paper that you're writing or whatever, and just for 10 minutes, wash dishes, that's actually pretty restful. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and you just notice so many more things about uh, the process. You're, you're not comparing it to something else that you may think may be better, you're just absorbed in, in the process of doing it and right. you can find that level of being, being okay being right there. Right. Absolutely. Um, so another interesting thing that you bring up a lot in your work that I'm curious about is the idea of not venting out your frustrations. Um, how, how did right. you, or how did you come to those conclusions and why do you believe that uh, we, we get it so wrong as a society in thinking that we should vent our frustrations out on things? And, and yeah, you know, I think the answer to that is a good blend of of science and and uh, some reflection. So starting with the science, uh, there's some really good research that compares multiple ways of coping with anger or multiple ways of coping with stress. And one of the earliest studies I remember reading about was you know taking one of those myths that you know we all have, which is okay if you're angry, well you know punch a bag. Well, uh, there were some really neat studies that were done that showed that actually made people angry and then made them do one of three things. And in those studies, they compared actually acting out the anger with just taking some time out uh, as the two main comparisons for us to think about. And what that research showed was that counterintuitively, the people who actually just took some time out had greater reductions in anger and negative emotion than the people who threw play plate or or punched a bag or did something like that. So you know, it's it's there are and there are many other studies like that that really made me think about you know this whole notion of um, what happens when we're stressed. I mean, some of my early research, uh, I spent almost three years at UCLA, a lot of which was spent on on stress research and reading a lot of the stress uh, research and how people cope with stress. You know, that's one of the really interesting things that comes up there is that you realize that when we're stressed, there's a lot of biological stuff that's happening that inter- that influences mental stuff uh, that can then influence feelings. And I think having this full recognize, uh, recognition of the fact that there's biology going on that's interfering with our thinking, putting it together with some of those studies showing that taking some time out works really made me realize that in so many cases, instead of venting, the answer is giving your body a a chance to settle down and get those chemicals dealt with and then using your mind and your thinking to really aid that process. So really it's, there are just a lot of those myths out there about what people think is right, mostly perpetuated by, you know, social media or not adequate critical thinking. You know, people share stuff on Facebook that sounds right, but isn't really borne up by science. And that's why I love psychological science because it tests a lot of seeming common sense. And we realize that what we often think is common sense doesn't really stand up to 
hysterical investigations. And I think venting anger is one of those things. It's much better to take time out and chill rather than venting. I would think that with something like venting our own anger, you know, it, it probably feels better in the moment to vent your anger out on something rather than try to take a step back and reflect on what is really happening here. And that's probably what also fuels, you know, the reasons why we believe in it is because, well, if it feels good, at least in that moment, then it must be true. Yeah, there's just so many of those myths out there. And, you know, that's why I love being a psychological scientist, because you, you test them and, you know, and you find that what we often thought was the case may not necessarily be so. No, indeed, our behavior does not change on the full moon. You know, things, things like that. Yeah, and especially as, as we were talking about earlier, you know, dealing with the human mind, there's just so many different factors you have to consider that it's, it's never as simple as, oh, you are angry, simply just take your anger out on something other than the thing that of your, than the object of your anger. <laughs> Absolutely, yep. So um, I'm curious, why did you want to share these, you know, findings with the world via your TED Talk? What, what made you um, motivated to take that extra step and, and teach it to regular people like me? You know, teaching, it really came from teaching introductory psychology for so many years. And teaching it, you know, and I, when I teach intro psych, I teach it to 250 students. And when I see how that those 250 react to this information, how I see it helping change the way the world is looked at, how life is, is, is viewed. Uh, it really makes me think that everybody should get this psychology. It, there's this basic psychology. You know, one of my mottos is and psychology for all. Uh, one of my goals is to get psychology to, our, to as many people as possible. And uh, one of the best ways to do that is a credible platform like the TED platform. And uh, when I saw an opening or invitation for speakers, I figured that would be one of the best places to try and reach as many people as possible and share uh, empirical evidence that can really change life. Sure. So, I mean, in your TED Talk, you go into three major points, and that is chill, drill, and build. Um, can you explain where you came up with those ideas uh, to people who maybe haven't seen your TED Talk yet? Sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, we talked about how behavior is influenced by the situation and personality. Uh, if we were to get even broader and say, well, you know, intro psych, hey, I can't take a 15-week course. Why don't you put it in a nutshell? Well, I try. I, that's that's the challenge I set myself to is going coming up with a nutshell. If and I want to say, what are the most important things that you can take out of psychological science today? And there's there's lots of great stuff. But when I think about what could really change how you live your life every day, three things came up: is the recognition that our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are have a very biological basis. Uh, many of us are biophobic or science-phobic, and we don't want to hear about biology. The reality is thinking and feeling and behaving has a strong biological basis. That's where it starts with. It's not magic. It's not, you know, spirits in the material world necessarily. Uh, it's the fact that we have a brain with all these neurons that are determining behavior, that are determining thoughts. So that's, that was one big element is, is biology. Uh, another big element is the fact that so much of our behavior is automatic. Uh, when I think about thoughts, 
whether you're 9, 18, or 50, you know, your thoughts are automatic to a large degree. We are, we've, we've thought, uh, we think in certain ways that we're used to thinking and how we've always done it. And that seems like a really major component there, this, automa- this automatic nature, uh, so much so that recognizing that it's automatic is important and then practicing very consciously practicing ways uh, to get around those automatic reactions are pretty key. So that was that second big component. So the first big component, of course, is, is a lot of what we do is biology. The second big component is that a lot of our behavior is automatic. And the third big component and this sort of gets at situational kinds of things. But the third big component I realized is, is that we do a lot of what we do because of the social networks that we are a part of. We, you know, we eat well if the people we interact with eat well. We are more likely to smoke if if we hang out with smokers. We are more likely to exercise if we spend more time with exercisers. So this notion that these three things, our biology, these automatic processes, and our networks are important, led me to then come up with the three main ways that we can live life better. So given that biology is so important, we've got to recognize biology and really realize that there are situations where we need to just take some time out so that our biological processes have time to settle. That's where the chilling comes in. We've really got to chill in the face of extreme stress or extreme anger, for example, give our biology some, some way to calm down. The second big thing was, was to drill. And here I mean practice. Recognizing that so much of our behavior is automatic, we've got to practice doing things that get around those automatic things. Just because we have an automatic way of dealing with stress, it may not be the best way. And we've got to practice better ways. We've got to come up with what is better for us and then practice doing that. And that practice is important because when we're stressed, we revert back to automatic stuff. So unless we practice, we can't diffuse or short circuit those automatic reactions. Finally, uh, when I talk about building, social networks are so important that we need to spend time building and cultivating our social networks. The stronger our social networks, the, the healthier we're going to be. And so building social networks, putting time into recognizing our friends, bringing, expressing gratitude for our friends, and, and really strengthening our social relationships really will serve us well in the long run. So that's, you know, there's, as I said, there's a lot more really neat things to psychological science, but when it comes to everyday life and everyday folks who may not be going into psychology as a field, uh, these three components are really, really important. And no matter what you work at, no matter what your job is, no matter what you do, I think being aware of our biology, being aware of what's automatic and being aware of our social networks, I I think three of the most important things that uh, we can learn more about. Interesting. So we've obviously talked a lot about the uh, chill and drill stuff. Um, So I'm curious more about build. Would you include, uh, say, environments and, you know, the the way that you set up your um, your daily routines and stuff like that? Would you consider that part of the build? Because then you're in different situations and it's going to influence you in different ways. 
You know, yes. I mean, I, I think I think how we engineer our day to day lives. You know, who we see. I mean, do you spend your life at a at a computer terminal? Uh, you know, I, I mean, are you communicating with other people? Are you building into your schedule uh, different ways of interacting with people? I mean, I think that's important too. You know, just taking time out and getting things done may feel good to accomplish stuff. But I think if we're not taking the time to build our relationships and build into our schedule times of interacting with friends and family, I think we lose out. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things we, we've talked um, a lot about the the ways that we can calm down and, and chill and, and do or react to uh, things like stress and anger. So I, I'm curious about kind of the opposite side of the coin. How do we find motivation when we need to find it? You know, I think going to, to build is one of the first good places is the fact that you can, you can actually, you know, by often we can get motivation from our friends, from our families. I mean, when we feel down, talking to people is one of the best things we can do. Uh, you know, and I, I don't think we, we do that enough. Interesting. All right, so you mean um, talking about our goals or more about our kind of vulnerabilities and stuff like that? I think talking about talking about things that disturb us, thinking about talking about things that make us scared, thinking talking about things that make us anxious. Far too often we keep that inside, you know, and uh, we don't express our emotions enough. I think men in general have a bigger for this. Women in general tend to do better, uh, although there are you know exceptions to the rule both ways. Uh, I mean, but I think really sharing more about our thoughts and feelings with people close to us and you know is a good way to go there's a lot of research been done on what people post on social media and a lot of research suggests that very often people only post negative things uh, and i'm not just talking about posting things i'm talking about actually having conversations with with friends and people that you're close to where uh you know and if you've cultivated and built your networks well you'll have somebody who or some and hopefully many people who you can bounce some ideas off you can say hey you know any suggestions for how i could do this differently and i think we may be surprised to hear that not only uh, many people share our anxieties or concerns or fears or apathies, but uh, we can get some really good exam uh, ex examples of what to do from people close to us. I can think of multiple conversations with good friends of mine who are also academics, and they share little tricks that they've used that makes life better that you know I've, I've taken to using as well. So I think, and that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have good networks and wasn't open to talking to them about it. Interesting. Um, one of the things that you brought up that was kind of interesting to me was the uh, social media aspect. Um, you mentioned that mm -hmm. people mostly post negative things on social media. Are you referring to, say, commentary about the news or something like that? Because mostly that when I think about social media, I think about people saying, look how great my life is. And because we right. think that everyone else saying, look how great my life is, we think that we're doing something wrong because, right. you know, it, we're not living up to that standard that, you know, probably doesn't really exist. Right, and I think you know that that that's actually there are there are probably two uh, in on social in me social re, uh, media research that's those are two of the main things that uh, researchers have found is that there is the 
you know, reading other people is everything so good and my life isn't as good uh, camp. But there's also the camp where there are certain individuals that tend to just post negative stuff. And I think, you know, this is a, an interesting case of where sometimes it's important to prune your network so that you're not exposed to a lot of negative stuff, you know. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you do see a lot of that, that positiveness in, in social uh, networks. But I think it it also depends on on what your networks are. Uh, I think it's it's if, if if a lot of positive stuff comes to mind, you're probably sharing and have some really good connections. Uh, there, are, unfortunately, there are many who have connections where most of their friends are sharing negative things. Sure, I mean, I, I actually left social media about six months ago, so maybe my uh, my information on it is a little bit stale. <laughs> Well, and I, I have significantly cut down on how much time I spend on social media, uh, especially in the last year, because there's only so much, you know, griping that I can take. And uh, I, I and I think there are better ways, you know, so I mean, I and and, you know, the way social media works is don't click on stuff that you don't want to see more of. So I reinforce the positive postings of my friends and uh, uh, and punish by not clicking and liking the things that uh, I want to see less of. And I'm hoping that those algorithms behind the scene are taking uh, are taking note. Yeah, I mean that's the the problem is is that we're we're so unaware of not many people are going to think like like that of if I click on this thing that means there's going to be more things like it, <laughs> um, but that's a, a topic for an entirely other day, another day. Um, a lot of what you're saying is is great when it comes to building our uh, social networks more deliberately. Um, I, I'm curious, how can we be more selective? Like, say I'm in a social network that I know is is doing me no personal good. Mm-hmm. How do I kind of respond to that? Uh, you know, because we, we don't want to lose our friends, right. yet we don't want to do the unconscious behaviors that make us, you know, not live up to the, the best self we know how to be. Right. And I think there are different levels at which you can do stuff. Uh, my, I like the root, I like the root of ignoring certain things that I'm not fond of. Uh, I can do that because automatically I think, I mean, especially when you take some of the common social media outlets, you know, I'll say this unfriending somebody is probably a last resort. There are much, there are much, you know, there are easier routes to go, ranging from the unfollowing to the just really ignoring. Because something I found very nicely is that when I've ignored certain individuals whose posts are not of a tenure that I I I, I like, sure enough, within a few days or weeks, they've dropped out of my feed, and. Um, you know, I think that's the very easy way to go. There are definitely some some cases where, if, if it's a, a a close friend, uh, where I have written to that person one on one, and had a conversation. But you know, those are those times are really few and far between. There are many easier routes to go. But I think being being yeah being conscious of of you know if if you if you as an individual find that social media is upsetting you. You know, one step is taking some time out from it, but there are other steps where, which is literally the unfollowing certain feeds, and you, you'll you'll notice a big difference right away uh, with even that strategy. 
Hmm. I, I was mostly referring to um, real social networks rather than uh, ones ones oh, online, <laughs> but like like fr- uh, group friends, you know, making the decision not only to say join a gym, but join a gym that right. also has a, a level of social uh, connection there. You know, if it's it's like a group membership or um, group classes or whatever, um, how how can we mm-hmm. make better choices when it comes to that in both joining new ones that are better for us and leaving ones that aren't as good. For for us well I, I think I think it's it's being okay and telling yourself to consciously make that decision to make changes based on what you like I think too many of us uh, hesitate from doing that we think we'll hurt people's feelings uh, we think oh it won't look good but we've got to think about the bigger longer-term health benefits and mental health benefits of making a change like that. Uh, I think, you know, not every gym membership or group is going to be good for everybody. And I think we've got to be ready to say, you know what, this isn't really working well. Let me try something else. Um, so lastly, for anyone wanting to try out uh, Know Yourself, Change Your Behavior, what, what kind of impact do you hope that it has on their life over the long term by using it on a regular basis? Well, I think the good news is Given the extent to which it can make a difference in day-to-day life by practicing some of these strategies, and that's key. It's got to be practiced. It's not going to be a magic bullet. It's not going to happen immediately. It's going to take practice. It's going to take work. But I think by just practicing some of these strategies, you'll be able to see, I mean, the world will look different. I mean, you, you can, I look forward and I enjoy better periods of good mood and and mental and physical health just by practicing some of these really, really basic strategies. Sure. So you brought uh, one thing to my attention that I didn't really think about, but when we're changing behavior, statistically, we're going to fail <laughs> to reach our goal. Right. We're, most likely we're going to right. fail at least at some point along along the way. What what are some good ways to respond to that failure and, and make sure that it doesn't mean that you get, lose completely? It's just a, a bump in the road. Right. One of the things I tell myself is is always to set a time period for change, you know, and, and for example, you know, we're talking on the, the, the first week of January. Oh, the first two weeks of January are great for resolutions, but what about 20 days in? What about one month in, right? So from the get-go, from the get-go, we've got to make a conscious decision to give ourselves a, li- a large time period to try something out. You know, don't stop something just because it's not working right away. Uh, and by the same token, stop, don't stop being conscious about something just because you're in that honeymoon period, you know, be, give yourself this explicit period of time that you will try something. Uh, I think then, then another key is being open to change. There are a lot of mental strategies and behavioral strategies. Uh, you may have to, by trial and error, find the best one that works for you. So just if your first attempt or your second or your third attempt doesn't work, Try something different. Try something different. You will find something that will work for you, that will practice, will stick. Interesting. So, so is there like a Goldilocks time period of, of not so long that it seems like it's, you know, it's going to take forever in order for you to get it, that it's not, it's not manageable, yet not too short, that it's, it's not really making a real difference or a real impact? Right. Well, you know, the, 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 the empirical answer to that question seems to be something in the vicinity of four to six months. Now, I know that sounds like a long time, but 
for habits to change, um, a lot of the research I've seen suggests that you've got to keep that new habit going for at least four months to six months before it comes close to being a new habit. Otherwise, we can revert back. Uh, so, I mean, I think that gives you a, a time sense of the fact that, you know, things like this aren't easy, you know, uh, especially if, you know, especially if you are older, you've been used to thinking a certain way all your life. Uh, that, that automatically, that's going to take a lot of practice to start thinking differently. So, you know, that, dr- that drilling part, you've got to be ready to do some drilling and do it often and know that there'll be some slips, but that's okay. Just get back on the horse and keep at it. Interesting. And so would you say then, kind of bringing this back to your earlier point, that um, set or keep in mind, you know, it's going to take four to six months and you're going to stumble, say, one, two or three times along the way. Um, as long as you keep on trying for those four to six months and, and stay focused on keeping on going, then uh, you'll be able to, I don't know, not let a flat tire mean the end of your journey. Right. Well, you know, and, and of course, keep trying, but also remember making changes because, you know, you may be practicing something that works for, you know, I may practice that will work great for you, but that doesn't necessarily work well for me, you know? So being open to, to tweaking what you're doing a little bit and, and, and giving something new a shot. So um, let's put the uh, concrete example behind this. Would would the change you're talking about, is that, say, instead of going to the gym in the morning, try it at lunch or something like that? Or is it stop going to, stop going to the gym and focus on diet? <laughs> That's, that's, that's a great example. I think before I move to something totally different, I'm talking about more the right time. You know, some people write better in the morning. Some people write better in the nights. I mean, I'm, I'm not a great morning runner. You know, people say to me, oh, wake up at six. That's when you find time to run. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not, that's just not the type of runner I am. So I more often than not run mid-afternoon. My wife doesn't like running in the afternoon. See, see so those, it's it's find what works for you. So I'm not going to stop running. I know that running is one of the best ways that I can get into shape, but I just going to find the right time and the right place that works best for me. Sure. So before you change your strategy from um, giving up running and focusing instead on diet, find different times throughout the day to see if you can do the same thing or do the same behavior um, in a more effective way that works for you. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I don't have any more questions for you, and I don't want to take up any more of your time. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time out today to chat with me, um, and it's been a pleasure. Sounds good, Colin. Uh, fun talking. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Garung. If you're looking for more resources on how you can take action on Dr. Garung's advice, be sure to check out his program on educocommunity.com called Know yourself, change your behavior. You can also check out his TED Talk titled Get Psyched, Think Stronger, Live Longer, and visit his website, regangaroong.com.